Good evening, listeners. It's the 4th of November, 2018, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Heather Forsyth. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, you can check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the host and their guest and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Anna St. Lorenz, a fourth-year PhD student in a nanoparticle-specific program within the College of Pharmacy. Thanks for joining us. Hi, good evening. So you are in a really unique position because you're actually based at OHSU as a grad student within OSU. So can you tell us a little bit about what a day in the life looks for you and what that means? Uh, yeah, sure. So it's a relatively new program. I think it's only been around for about four years. And it's interesting because we're not on a college campus per se. Uh, it's actually a medical hospital the OHSU hospital, and uh, there are student programs there, so we're housed in one of the buildings with uh, some PSU students, uh, some of the dental school, uh, medical students, and OHSU students. So we do interact with other students, but I think there's only, I want to say maybe less than 10 OSU students in the program uh, who are up in Portland. Uh, So there's very few of us. And uh, we represent about four different labs, each of them working on nanoparticle sciences. So it's uh, it's kind of interesting because we don't have like a, we're actually we're we're actually even separate from a lot of the student facilities on that campus. It the campus itself exists on a giant hill. It's kind of fun because you get to take a tram <laughs> up to the top of it. Nice. <laughs> Which is like if you have to get a book from the library or use any services, you're it's a good half hour. <laughs> wow. Cool. So you are in a really unique program, but you also had a really unique journey kind of getting to this program, to OSU in general. So can you tell us about maybe the first time you thought about doing science or became interested in science? Yeah. So um, I'm actually from a, a small farm on the near the New Hampshire border. So still in Massachusetts. And um, growing up on a farm, you're kind of exposed to some different areas of science, just by virtue of being there. So we, I think I was, I'm going to say about eight. And my dad came home and he had uh, purchased a microscope at a yard sale. And uh, so that was, that was the beginning of me just like disappearing into the wilds of the farm and cutting up random leaves and anything really that I could find and sticking it on microscope slides. And that was, that was probably the beginning of it. Well, that and the animal husbandry aspect we're terrible at growing plants, so that, <laughs> that never happened very well. Since I've left, my father has like developed a green thumb, and now he like cans tomatoes, but that was not active when I was there. It was just strictly <laughs> animal husbandry. Cool. So what was your first research experience? Um, so I went, I knew I wanted to go into science, and I went to Smith College undergrad, which is in western Massachusetts, and uh, there I was working on a... I was working on a, this this project 
that was looking at extremophiles. So they're organisms that like to exist in really strange and interesting places. I was looking at things that exist in arsenic lakes, which took me out to Death Valley. So we got some. We all had to get different like funding from all these different places to fund our individual projects. And then we. This is how we spent uh, spring break, is we all got these fundings. And we went to Death Valley, which is kind of like, I mean, it is what it sounds like. It's it's the worst place. <laughs> Unless you're a geologist, of which you really love Death Valley, because there's no vegetation anywhere, so you can see all the bare rocks. I know. We brought one of those <laughs> with us, and he was so excited. <laughs> but we all, I mean, we faced crazy weather. Uh, there's plague rats down there, coyotes. So it was a, so Smith College is a women's college, so we had some of the women from that college, and we partnered with Hampshire College and Harvard. So there were other people on this this trip with us, and some we had like a, a women's tent and a men's tent. Well, the men decided not to bring a tent; they were gonna, they were going to sleep under the stars. Did not go well. <laughs> there were coyotes out there, <laughs> so it was a, it was quite an experience. Uh, we like it was fun, very educational, but it was definitely uh, it, it like shifted my attention more towards lab sciences. So you also wrote the grant or helped write the grant in order to do this project as well. So you kind of had this cradle to grave familiarity with your this first experience with research. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, I did. So I wrote, uh, so we each had, we each kind of developed our, it's Hampshire College. I don't know how to describe this specifically, but the class I was in was called geomicrobiology. So like halfway through the semester, it's kind of, a, it's a, it, there's like no grades so one of those things where a teacher writes you a specific evaluation at the end. It's a very uh, positive learning experience for some. So we were taking this class there, and halfway through the semester, he looked at us and he said, all right, what is it you guys really want to do? <laughs> so we said, we really, we really want to delve farther into this. We came from all these different fields, and we were all kind of struggling to stay on topic because we had such different backgrounds so we decided that actually doing some physical research would be, you know, it would at least make us do things more in the same vein. So we all wrote our own projects. We all got our own funding. So everyone wrote their own grants, and mine was sponsored in part by um, some of the churches on campus that I volunteered with. The purpose of this research was to look at bacteria that can, I'm going to briefly say, take care of arsenic. But can you expand on that idea? Oh, yeah, sure. So um, I was looking at uh, microbes. I was very interested in these microbes that metabolize or take in arsenic, and as it goes through their system, when they expel it or excrete it, it comes out in a non-oxidated form, so it's not toxic to humans. So the thought process at the time was, hey, wouldn't it be really cool if um, we had these microbes that could filter out arsenic from water because it pertains to research going on for aquifers or you can think of them kind of like puddles under the surface of the ground in Bangladesh. And so in Bangladesh, they have this problem where they're trying to get well water. When they pierce the ground to get the water that they have found there, it oxidizes the water. These these uh, This arsenic that was not oxidized becomes oxidized, and then there's arsenic in the water and everyone gets cancer. So it's, kind of, it's much easier to filter out uh, microbes than it is to filter out arsenic. So if you can have the microbes in the water that filter it to a non-toxic form of arsenic, you can very easily get the microbes out. So that was really interesting. And based on this kind of research, they, we all got funded to look at different things. And our professor had, of course, his own pet projects. So we all tagged along with him. It was great fun. It's a really <laughs> interesting experience. Cool. So after that and after your undergraduate degree, where did you go after that? 
so I got accepted into a program at Rensselaer Polytechnic, which is in upstate New York. Um, so not at all New York City. <laughs> it's kind of very, it's very, very remote up there. It's, it's very different. Uh, it's, it's, it's much more like what I was used to back home, a lot of farmland. Um, and we, I studied um, biomedical engineering. So they have a couple of graduate programs up there that are very engineering. It's an engineering college, so everyone loves math an awful lot. <laughs> and I learned, <laughs> I learned to love math an awful lot as well. Uh, it was it was really interesting, but of course there was there was continuing this kind of medical approach to my studies. Cool. So then uh, during that program, you actually made a move while that was happening away from upstate New York. Yeah. So um, at, uh, I think it was like two years into it, I was just a few classes shy of finishing my master's, and I thought it'd be really fun to just kind of jump into everything at once. So I. <laughs> Perfect. Finished up my classes in Boston, uh, and I, I paid for for them by working at MIT. So that was uh, that was a lot, <laughs> but it was fun though. It was it was a good move, and I have family in Boston. It was nice to be around them. And nice. So what did you do at MIT then? So I worked at two different projects at MIT. That's where I really started to get into nanoparticles. Of course, I had heard of them, uh, especially at Rensselaer Polytechnic. I had uh, exposure to them in my classes, but I hadn't worked on them specifically. So. Working at MIT, I was in uh, Dr. Langer's lab, and he's renowned uh, in many fields, chemical engineering and nanoparticles very specifically. So it was wonderful to be surrounded by these people who were so impassioned by healthcare and uh, nanoparticles and, and diagnostics and therapeutic delivery. So I worked on my first project there was looking at delivering cancer therapeutics and uh, which was only a year project. I was like at the tail end of it. So then at the end of that project, somebody else hired me on to work on a Gates-funded project, which was looking at malarial therapeutics. So we were trying to find ways to, um, to have malaria drugs or you know, dissolve better and be, be distributed more effectively in patients. So then how did you transition from MIT to suddenly being here in Portland? Okay, I always feel like I cheat like when I say this because it's not like I just like picked up one day and was like, I think I'll just go to Oregon. <laughs> like, and I know that there are some people, and I, and, and I want to be careful when I say this because we actually we have people in my lab who have picked up their entire lives and moved not just across the country but like across the world. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely cheated. I have family out here. So I, when I moved out here, it wasn't completely unknown. I've been coming to Oregon for summers or vacation to visit people. And, uh, you know, of course, I had the support of my family when I moved out here. They picked me up from the airport and everything. So uh, one of my colleagues, he was like across the bench from me. He got a position at OSU for uh, like an assistant professor. So he took me with him and uh, I helped him as a lab manager for a while. So he got set up. I joined the graduate program out here. I moved out here knowing that they were setting up a nanoparticle-specific program. So that's how that all started. Could you briefly describe to our listeners what it means to be a lab manager and why that's so important for a, to have a good lab manager for a highly functioning lab to actually happen? I mean, it's like the difference, I guess, between chaos <laughs> and functionality um it it's um having somebody there 
to make sure the orders are in, the projects are running, the machines are operational, uh, the warranties are updated and, and used, the meetings run, the anything you could think of, that any small thing you could think of in lab when you need someone working on it, especially because if you've got graduate students, this is not their main focus. You could try to make it be their main focus. It's not going to go well. So I've been working in labs for a long time, so it was not that big a transition for me to just kind of flip to the more managerial side. And it was uh, working with my friend, so it was very nice to be able to help him in that way as well. Cool. So can you now, so we've got you in to OHSU now. Can you talk about, give us your spill. What is your research? Okay. So actually, I wanted to give you credit for how you wrote this up on the blog. I thought that was a brilliant opening line. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly how, how, so for people who haven't read the blog, she started off by saying, like, wouldn't it be nice if cancer just kind of jumped up and was like, here I am. And that's, of course, not the case. So I work specifically in ovarian cancer, which is number uh, it's top 10 of diagnosis in the United States, but it's top five in mortality, which should be a notable if you're thinking about it because it means that while we were able to diagnose this and it's happening in, in in huge numbers it's not something that's I think over 50 percent yes definitely over 50 percent of the people diagnosed will uh die from ovarian cancer or you know ovarian cancer related things so to address this we were thinking about it and we we're looking at the kind of the the path that patients take from their initial diagnosis to where they're actually getting treatment and there's this gap, there's this unmet need where uh, people aren't getting diagnosed or, or sc- there's no real screening method either. So you're only finding out you even have this disease when you're at stage three or four, which it's pretty advanced at that state. And it's usually metastasized or the cancer has traveled to different parts of your body. So now you're not just dealing with one cancer tumor, but you're dealing with uh, an advanced stage of it. So, of course, everything else just gets a little bit more extreme as you go. So the only you're t- you're saying that the only currently the only way we can kind of I- identify and figure out whether or not you have this kind of cancer is when it's too late. It sounds like I'm not going to say that <laughs> it's never too late, but only 15 percent of cases are diagnosed in stage one or stage two. So um, and the 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 current screening method is looking for this one antigen that's in your blood, but it's called CA125 or cancer antigen 125. And it gets upregulated for really weird reasons, like liver cirrhosis or just normal menstruation. Or, you know, so you can see it's elevated. You can kind of guess there might be a problem, but I mean, it it's, gives you so many false positives that it's not that useful. So the signal to noise ratio just isn't good enough for early detection. Yeah, I mean, they're using like ultrasound is a really common way to look for some abnormalities. Um, I did this interesting. Research like two weeks ago, I, I actually didn't know exactly what ovarian cancer looked like. So if anyone's interested, Google it and then be terrified. Um, it's, it's really hard to tell the difference between other sorts of situations happening in ovaries versus ovarian cancer. And especially in early stages, you're dealing with something so small. <laughs> it's so hard to find. Can you tell us... On that note, how small is a nanoparticle? Can you give us an idea of what it is you're working with? Yeah, okay. So we are looking at nanoparticle delivery of imaging agents to help diagnose these, especially early-stage cancers. So if you guys, I like to describe it this way. It's, you can't use it now because it's bad for the environment. But they used to have this face wash that had those little beads in it. 
and those are microparticles. That's on the scale of like a micrometer. So a nanometer is at least one one thousandth of that size. Those are typically like, I don't know, five, ten micrometers. It's like even smaller than that. So we are we are very effectively <laughs> packaging very small dyes into these uh, these nanostructures to to aid in delivery. Can you tell us uh, why is it that we need the nanoparticle to deliver these dyes instead of just injecting the dye into you? So I'm going to say there's like three or four reasons. I'm probably going to remember to say two or three by the time I'm done talking, but we're, okay. just, we're going to start. Um, so one, there's uh, there's just solubility or just issues of trying to get the, the imaging agent or any sort of drug into a patient. Um, they're not all water-soluble or water-loving, and since your blood is made of water and you are made of water, this can be a challenge. So especially when I was working on things like malaria therapeutics, that's a very classic example of drugs that do not like to be in water, so they are largely ineffective in that you have to take much larger doses to have any activity. So same concept here. If you're dealing with anything that you want to have in your body, you want to make sure it's compatible. So nanoparticles can be so specifically designed for the individual agent you're looking at. So it helps it helps us take very unique structures that are therapeutically active and make them biocompatible. So that's one. Okay, the second thing is there's this cool thing with nanoparticles where that specific size range of thing um, falls into these blood vessel. It's like a leaky blood vessel. So your cancer tumor grows in an unregulated manner, meaning that when it's trying to make blood vessels to support its nutrients, the blood vessels are also unregulated. So it's like a garden hose with a bunch of holes in it. (laughs) (laughs) Like anything will just kind of come out of it. So we call that the EPR or enhanced permeability and retention. So molecules or, or, you know, nutrients or things that, that go through your bloodstream just kind of fall out of the garden hose and uh, hang out more in the tumor. So you have a more selective delivery just in the fact that you're talking about nanoparticles. And the last thing I wanted to say about it was that uh, in, in, in thinking about how you can make this nanoparticle so specific for each individual instance that you're thinking of, we can add targeting antibodies or, or other moieties to the outside of it so we can actually be looking at more selectively adhering to cancer tissue. So if you're seeing a signal from these contrast agents or imaging agents, then it's because they are being very selectively taken up by cancer tissue. So there's no background noise. There's all, sorry, there's also another reason why there's no background noise, okay. um, which is, I think, one of the most interesting things about the agents that we're looking at. Um, so these are near-IR agents. So they absorb light in this like, weird window. So below near-IR, there's things like uh, visible light, and your body will absorb visible light. So just by nature of like the, just by nature of being a human, you have tissue and you have water, and these absorb both below and above this window. But between like seven hundred to eight fifty nine hundred, your body does not absorb that light as well. So we can administer light to you at this range, and it's not really going to affect you in any way. Meaning we can get it deeper into you to get to the dye in the cancer. So what's um, cool about this, these particular dyes is while they absorb light in this region, they, if you guys know anything about fluorescence, it's kind of, you can think of it in that way. It absorbs this light. It has this energy. The particles are now excited. When they come back down to a, when they try to come back down to a normal state, 
they give off heat, and this heat creates thermal expansion. Or like another way to think of it is it just kind of makes the tissue around it swell a little bit, and that creates a, an acoustic wave or a sound wave. So that sound wave is able to be picked up by a transducer from an ultrasound. So just to put the whole thing in perspective, <laughs> you're sending a light into a person, and the dye is activated, and you're getting a sound wave out. And that's nice because where else are you going to get sound waves from your ovaries? I don't really imagine that you shouldn't be. If you're having sound waves from your ovaries, something else is terribly wrong. So the signal to noise in this case is really, really good. So you said that you can sense this with just like an ultrasound. So does that mean that maybe uh, pretty much any hospital then could like use this? Yeah, that was part of my thinking was to was to make something that wasn't so extraordinarily difficult to use that wouldn't require all this extra training, but it's, it is it is a different technically like probe in that we're not, okay. normal ultrasound is you send sound waves in and they bounce off things and you get sound waves back. So you just have to have an ultrasound transducer that does not send anything in, but rather only picks up sound waves that are produced. Okay. So very, yeah, very inexpensive. Any technician should be able to do this. Cool. Huh. So I'm thinking of these nanoparticles kind of in the way that uh, somebody would get a really well-tailored suit or a really well-tailored dress where it's like very specific to these dyes. And then those dyes can kind of go and find, you know, the, the, the right cocktail bar for the right dress that they're wearing or the right wedding, you know, for so that. So, again, these these individual um, dyes that you're using will also kind of uh, uh, preferentially attach to different types of cancer or uh, is, is it like different stages of that cancer? So you send in, you know, multiple different kinds of tuxedos and dresses in, into the body and only specific ones will kind of attach on. Is that right? I have never thought of it that way. That is a really good way to describe it. <laughs> I have my graphic designer sitting back here with me, so I hope he's listening. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about your graphic design in just a second. Um, yeah, that's that's a really good way to put it. So, yeah, so you can look at all uh, the stages of the cancer. Um, I've been looking at trying to figure out if there are ways to determine if they're going to be chemosensitive or if they're going to be able to react to chemotherapies. If you can tell a patient, I know that we've just picked up this signal and you've got ovarian cancer, but we also have this other information about it. So we know that it's at this stage or it will or will not react to this therapy or this class of therapy or... I don't know, anything else we can think of to try to make this be a little bit more clinically relevant is that's all stuff that we're we're it's in the, the the grand scheme of it so it's way more than just a binary you have cancer you don't it's a you have cancer you can identify it you can somewhat extrapolate to what treatments would be most beneficial as well and again this is also in the earlier stages of cancer which as of now we we're kind of at a loss yeah, that's, that's that's right. So so hopefully this will not only be a boon to um, survival rates, but also a comfort to kind of know that you're you have a more characterized cancer. And we're not just thinking of this in terms of patients, you know, in, in saving saving lives down the road, but also there's so much about cancer we don't understand even to this day. And I assume that we'll be studying it for a very long. It's not going anywhere. So <laughs> we have clinical trials. Um, and other sorts of things going on where it would be really nice to just be able to characterize. We're scientists. We like to characterize. So if we can start to understand, I don't know, maybe you could think of it, maybe different types of ovarian cancer happen in different areas. Maybe there's different genetic 
genetics that like lead into this, but having different ways that we can look at this would be beneficial. So I don't know, one of the things I thought about is that since we can detect them in the tumor in the patient, maybe you could detect them still in a biopsy. So there's all these clinical trials going on where they look at biopsies. Of course, that's one of the ways that you try to diagnose this as well. So I don't know. There's all these different applications that could be used in the future. We're just creating a tool. So speaking of, I'm going to ask you to kind of maybe go beyond your comfort zone and ask whether or not, so we're talking about ovarian cancer specifically, but you're developing this tool that I think has a lot of applications. So could this potentially be used a little bit down the road with other types of cancers? Uh, yes. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So um, ovarian cancer com- uh, commonly metastasizes or goes through or turns into breast cancer, colorectal cancer. Um, so this, the way that I've started to apply it and look at it now would be directly related to those types of cancers. But yeah, you could name a cancer and um, look at some targeting and try to apply it. There's definitely, there's so much work. <laughs> if anyone wants to come work with me in my lab, there is so much work. <laughs> Uh, so in addition to lab work, you also have done some really cool art for communication of your science. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, I, so I, I love science, but it's really important as a scientist that we're able to communicate with each other. It's also very important that we're able to communicate with the general public. Uh, they fund us. <laughs> so <laughs> we have to find a way to tell everyone what we're doing. And, you know, we don't like... Well, most of us don't like promoting the idea that we just kind of sit alone in a tower and do crazy mad science stuff. So it's, it's, it's really nice to find ways to interact with and get people involved in and excited with this type of research. Um, to that end, I've done work in bioart, and I, I started that in – well, I guess technically I started that at Smith. I took drawing classes, which my advisor thought I was crazy. She's like, why are you taking chemistry and physics and art? But it's a liberal <laughs> arts school. It's fine. So, um, but I wanted to be able to just show someone an idea I had, try to just communicate with my boss something that I was thinking or a a fellow researcher, and it blossomed from there. At RPI, I met actual bio artists, people who like put it on their business card, and we had some shows, and it was fantastic, and it was really, it was very interesting watching artists and scientists interact. And you could stop the story there, but then we had to talk to the public about it, and it got wild. It was really <laughs> fun, and we all learned something. And so now I do a lot of, when I do presentations to talk about my work, um, I do a lot of uh, different types of, like, Photoshop pictures. You can actually do a surprising amount in PowerPoint if you read the OSU website and they won't actually give you <laughs> Photoshop. <laughs> um but um, my husband has a degree in graphic design, so he's been helping out cool. just an awful lot. Nice. So for you listeners who, as, as I'm sure audio doesn't do well to portray said bio art, but you can check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration where we have the blog post up where we have an example of Anna, one of Anna's bio art pictures. But can you describe to listeners what bio art is? Because actually for me... I only recently found this term a couple months ago, and I think it's absolutely brilliant. Something I wish I knew about earlier. So I'm really excited to hear about like what kind of things you do as 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 part of this. It's a, well, it's a really 
it's an interesting term. It can be applied to, to like I said, to, to different presentations and Photoshop and things like that. But there's just like exhibits where they just have – there's one of my favorite exhibits. I love explaining this as bioart. I kid you not, it's a series of tubes, and they have, like, a lab mouse that runs through it just so people can see <laughs> what that is. <laughs> but it's anything that kind of relates the concept of art and and. I'm going to say biology, but we really know it's all the different sciences together to kind of find a way to better uh, explain, interact, or show off different aspects of, of science. Nice. So we have two traditions with Ad Inspiration. And the first one is uh, that you give us a piece of advice that you would have given to a younger self or someone in a similar situation. So do you want to let us know what that is? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay, so... Whenever I'm talking to younger students, and, I, you know, I, I do mentoring and teaching sometimes, so I always say that it's really very important to have your support system in place. So for me, of course, it's, you know, it starts off with my family. I think my grandparents are listening, so hello to them. <laughs> um, it's, they're actually 3,000 miles away in Boston, so it's, it's hard to always have your support system near you, So especially if you're making a big move like I did. It was it was nice to have family out here, but whatever it is, if you belong to, uh, you know, you get involved in a dance company or maybe some local organizations, maybe you join a radio show, but find your people early on. Um, you need to have something to ground you, especially if you're a scientist, because you will have so many days of bad data. <laughs> I had a colleague the other day just, like, mix up the top of two plates. It was like three days of my work was just gone. <laughs> <laughs> it's important to find people to come home to. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think we can all we can all have some some acknowledgement of like, oh boy, I think whenever I'm done with my degree, I'll probably I should have an honorary degree in label making. I think that's yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no matter what research you're in, label making is really necessary. <laughs> um, so the the last tradition that we have on the show is we ask you for a song. So what song did you choose and why? I forgot the name of it. <laughs> I totally forgot the name of it. Oh, it was, uh, it was, uh, this was, this was a collaborative effort. This was on our group chat, like, all morning. But we <laughs> collectively, as a lab, selected one way or another, which I think describes our feelings about uh, how we view the detection of cancer. We will find it one way or another. Awesome. With that... Uh, thank you so much for coming on air. We really appreciate you coming on. And I'll ask the rest of your lab group hanging out in Portland to come on down and be a part of the show. We're really excited to have new guests on. So with that, here is One Way or Another by Blondie. Thank you for listening. <laughs>